I love taking pictures too. I don't know that I'm very good at it, but I love, I like taking pictures of my kids at sporting events. I find it a fun little challenge to get a good picture. It's, yeah. So I can see why that would tie to endoscopy using the camera and everything. That's pretty cool. And sometimes you find yourself in the middle of a procedure, just kind of lost in the moment at the beauty of the image and, you know, a lot of abstractness and that kind of thing. So it's only somebody who loves GI that would say they saw the beauty of the image when they're doing endoscopy, but that's funny. Welcome to Endocast with your host, Leslie Bishop. This is episode 14 with our physician guest, Amritha Sethi from New York Presbyterian Columbia Hospital. Endocast is a GI focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Sethi, welcome. Thank you. Excited to be here. I am so excited to interview you. I've gotten to do a lot of interviews over the last few years, but you are my very first physician interview. So I'm very excited about that. Not too much pressure. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) I looked at your CV. It's like 23 pages long. I don't think you need to feel any kind of pressure. So I know we're going to be talking about Axios, but before we get into that, I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about your background. So can you just first explain why you decided to go into GI? I think when I first got into residency, actually, I just had exposure to a lot of great mentors in GI. I was exploring all sorts of fields, pulmonary, GI. A funny story, actually, was that I was rotating through the ICU, and we had some pulmonary attendings come by, and they were, like, you know, kind of going down the line of the residents working with us, and they said, oh, I... we think you're a pulmonary, a, a sputum person and a stool person. And then they looked at me and they're like, I think you're a stool person. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that's not the reason I went into it. But when I was in residency, was fascinated by liver transplant. And I saw patients go from acute liver failure through transplant, saving them, you know, through their variceal bleeding and then making it to transplant and then seeing them just, you know, have a normal life. And I thought that was fascinating. Early on, I got exposed to endoscopy and I was at the time an amateur photographer. And I love the idea of, you know, having imaging and being able to work that way with procedures. And so that's what actually originally got me in into GI, more on the liver side. And then when I got to my fellowship, I, again, just had fantastic exposure to brilliant mentors who were really passionate about the field, especially one who introduced me to biliary endoscopy and the science behind it. That just got me going and really kind of catapulted me into interventional endoscopy specifically. Okay. I was not planning to ask you about this, but I didn't know about it. You were or are an amateur photographer? Well, that's a self-title. I guess. <laughs> what do you like I to did, take? I, what do you I, like to take pictures of? I used to when I had time. <laughs> I just loved taking pictures when I was traveling, especially. Um, I had an old camera of my dad's that I used. It was one of the thirty-five millimeter print films, and I spent a fair amount of time in India, traveling and, and working in different areas, and got a lot of uh, experience with photography, and and yeah, just kind of fell in love with it. I haven't been able to do as much, you know, with our schedules and also with all the new technology and cameras. I can't quite keep up with that, unfortunately. (laughs) I love taking pictures, too. I don't know that I'm very good at it, but I love I like taking pictures of my kids at sporting events. I find it a fun little challenge to get a good picture. It's yeah. So I can see why that would tie to endoscopy using the camera and everything. That's pretty cool. And sometimes you find yourself in the middle of a procedure just kind of lost in the moment at the beauty of the image and, you know, 
a lot of abstractness and that kind of thing. So it's only somebody who loves GI that would say they saw the beauty of the image when they're doing endoscopy. But that's funny. So I love how much you've talked about mentorship, because this is something I wanted to ask you about. When I looked at your CV, I think you've mentored more than 20 people. When one of the people I spoke to said, she's not just a mentor, she's also a sponsor. And the difference between being a mentor and a sponsor is that the mentor will show you the door, but the sponsor will actually help you open the door. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that in terms of you investing in other people and mentoring other people, because it sounds like mentorship is a lot of what pulled you along in GI. Yes, this particular mentor helps show me the different paths and open, you know, again, engage in conversation. But it wasn't until I faced a challenge of having to make certain decisions and having, you know, the potential of not having an opportunity or losing an opportunity that that mentor specifically stepped in and gave me access to the privileges that he had in terms of being able to speak with certain people and also look for another opportunity for me if I needed it. And I think that is the difference. Sponsorships are unique relationships, but I think they are important to identify over time. Mentorship is easier to do. This doesn't mean that you can do it with everybody. I think that's something that mentees need to know is that you know not everybody is available to them as a mentor and it's not personal. It's just sometimes it's not a good fit. Sometimes that individual doesn't have the time. And then the sponsorship, it really has to be the right fit. And it has to be an understanding of, you know, I'm not doing this as a sponsor for a purpose of getting something back. I genuinely want to sort of pay it forward and, you know, invest in you because I do believe that given the right access and the right opportunities, I think that you have a future in this. And so it's very important to understand the difference between the two and very fulfilling when you can have those kind of relationships. So with the people you've mentored, I'm actually curious, are those formal mentorships? Are they coming to you and saying, can you please mentor me? Are you seeing people that have talent and you're going to them and saying, I'd like to mentor you? Like, how are those relationships being established? So I I have sort of formal mentees in the sense that we have two fellows every year who go through an advanced endoscopy fellowship. I mentor them automatically. Yeah. um, And then I definitely have mentees come to me and ask if I can be their mentor. And so that that's one way. Um, that's much more limited, but I definitely, you know, enjoy those and those relationships as well. I definitely have, especially over the past few years, as I've watched women apply, and we can't work with everybody, but I sort of it catches my attention. Someone who seems really qualified, who I'm excited about their future. I try to sometimes keep track of them and reach out and try to connect them. Sometimes when they, after they finish their fellowship or they're finishing and saying, you know, what are your plans? And think of places where, you know, someone I can match them with who might be great for their career. It's taken a wide array. And I've learned a lot of that as I think as I've gone through this process and obviously increased my own network so that I can, you know, offer that to mentees. So I was in a territory from 2003 to 2016. And I was thinking back. And in that entire time, I only had a few female physicians. Even in 2016, I had one therapeutic female and maybe five others total in my entire territory. So I know you have published on women in endoscopy. It's something you've talked about. It's something you're very passionate about. So I wanted to hear maybe what motivated you to start women in endoscopy. And I'd love to hear what kind of results you've seen in the field from that. Yeah, I love talking about it. It started because I uh, began to notice as I got involved at a you know more involved level with live courses, especially, which was something that was featured where I did my fellowship, 
that there were very few women faculty, especially when I would get invited back to be faculty, I would be the only one. And as I went to other courses, I noticed there were very few. Not that, you know, having male mentors was a problem. I, my mentors who got me to where I was at the time were all men. That was one, one thing I observed. And the other was when I would meet my female colleagues, which were very few, um, <laughs> we all sort of came together on this on this point that, you know, we, there's not a lot of us out there and we found ourselves at least having solace and being able to confide with each other and ask questions of each other. And then when I was attending, and actually it was, it was through a Boston Science rep who came up to me and sort of said, I'm working with these other women, and they were asking if I could put them in touch with you because they really want some mentorship and they want, you know, just to speak with you about the field and I was thinking you know that sure that would be great but I was like but I'd also (laughs) like to know who else is out there so I could talk to them and it kind of just came together as what we need to do is just really create this network there are lots of us hopefully out there we just need to know who each other are and create this safe space where we can just start you know working forward it's not really a, a forum for us to be complaining or anything like that but just really you know work together and and helping each other and promote ourselves, and that's really how it started. Yeah, the rep was Jen Lattersack, right? Yes, it was. Yes, okay. So have you seen an increase on, in women going into fourth-year fellowships and other things since the inception <laughs> of WE? Yeah, we were just talking about that this morning. We've seen a jump from about 18, 19 percent in 2018 to now almost 30 percent of the advanced endoscopy fellowship people who match are women, which is really thrilling for us. And not only an increase in number who matched, but of those who did match, getting really competitive positions. And as far as I know, ones that they wanted, whether they were regional or or a specific program. So that was really exciting to see. Okay, that is amazing, because I was looking at some data that there was a 10-year study, I think it was from 2009, I think, to 2019. And in general, GI, it was only a 3% increase. And so that shows like such a specific, I mean, what an amazing thing to be able to make that kind of impact in your own specialty to see almost double. I mean, that's not quite double, but almost double of the women going to those advanced fellowships. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's not just our work alone. Obviously, it's awareness that we need to find out what are the barriers. And now that research and data is out there looking at, you know, what are the barriers to women to go into interventional specifically and endoscopy and understand that so that then you can start to address those directly. And I think that the work that's been done has been really good for us as a community overall. I love it. That is awesome. Okay, well, let's shift gears. Amongst your many, many publications, you've written a lot about Axios. I wanted to talk to you about Axios today. So my first question is just, do you remember your first, your very first procedure? And I'm just curious, like, how that felt compared to doing them now? I actually used the device that became Axios. Yes. The Navix device and was involved in some of the early uses of that as well. And and I remember thinking while I was using it and having conversations with some of those involved about the problems with it and, (laughs) and, you know, the good parts and the bad parts. That was just a funny memory for me to think about how early exactly I was involved in all of this. And I do remember, I may not have been the exact first one, but one of the early uses of it, but then to see kind of the geniusness ingenuity, I should say, <laughs> in in the device. Certainly a little bit of trepidation as you're going through that first procedure. Is it going to work? Am I doing the steps correctly? There's a lot of start and stop and very methodical thinking about it. But yeah, it was really exciting to experience and, you know, that gush of 
you know, only a gastroenterologist can say this, but the gush of pus that comes out, you know, or fluid, <laughs> and just um, and seeing it being deployed properly was was really exciting. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so I'm curious how um, the way you're managing your patients during the procedure and after the procedure, how that's evolved, you know, since that first one. Not too much. I think from the beginning, we always intubated patients because we anticipated that there would be a big rush of fluid. There's some intraprocedural things that we've changed. I used to dilate all the time after placement. I don't do that anymore. Sometimes we think a little bit more about whether we're going to do some immediate intervention after placement of the of the axios. For the most part, I just place them stents and plan an intervention later unless a patient's really sick and needs, you know, further work. And then the other thing I think is probably we we probably did keep patients overnight after initial placement cuz we really didn't know how it would behave and you know, just any concerns about stent migration or bleeding. I think the more that we saw that there were not issues for the most part, it was much more comfortable discharging patients home the same day, you know, treating it as an outpatient. Okay. So what are some of the considerations you have pre-placement? Like, for example, if they're on blood thinners or do you put them on prophylactic antibiotics? Not beforehand, but we definitely give a dose of antibiotics if they're not already on them um, during placement. And then I actually don't give any afterwards. Just for that initial, you are kind of intentionally perforating and, and allowing for the possibility of some leakage. For blood thinners, it's better for them to be off of it for whatever appropriate amount of time, depending on the medication in question. But if it's an emergent case and it's not then, you know, I have proceeded with that just with, you know, careful, with caution. The points at which that can really present the biggest problem is the point of entry of the catheter. And if you think about it, these are cautery enhanced procedures that may potentially help in that situation as you're going through the wall for preventing bleeding from occurring, but certainly keeping an eye, taking a careful look, maybe even sitting in there for a few minutes and making sure that there's no issues. And if there is some bleeding that you see trying to treat that. Do you prescribe follow-up imaging? And if you do, what's your, what's your timeline on that? Yeah. So I usually prescribe it about two to three weeks after initial placement. It all does depend on how much debris is in the collection. If I know from the beginning that there's a lot of debris, it's a walled-off necrosis, I may plan a repeat intervention within two weeks without repeat imaging. However, if it's like a pseudocyst and mostly fluid-filled, then I'll plan it about within three weeks. If it's resolved, bring them back for removal at four to five weeks. And then what's your algorithm for stent removal? So again, if it's a collection that's resolved by four to five weeks, I'll, I'll remove the axios entirely. If there's some concern for disconnected duct syndrome, then I try to leave a double pigtail stent in place, potentially indefinitely, but remove the axios. And then if it's a walled-off necrosis, what I try to do is leave the stent in and take a look inside. I might dilate, go in and see how much necrosis there is. And in the first one to two interventions, leave the axios in place. What I found is that over time, sometimes accessing some of the material or or angulating the scope in certain ways can become difficult with the axios in place, paradoxically. And and so it's necessary to remove it in order to improve your access to that area. I think one of the things that's changed is our tools for necrosectomy. So before, we were really dependent on tools that required us going in and out of the collection. And having the axios in place was sort of an instant 
open it kept everything open and it was a little bit easier to you know manipulate the scope through but now we have some tools that allow us to actually keep the scope in place and not have to you know move in and out and so having the axios doesn't necessarily offer any advantage and at the same time you know where we can take it out in a timely fashion so we don't run into issues like patency or bleeding that have been associated with indwelling. For those patients that are walled off necrosis, what are the tools or agents that you're using? Kind of came up with innovative ways to to use those to remove materials. The newer devices, one in particular is a it's a rotating blade basically that cuts up the material and also at the same time suctions it up. So it's, you know, the the issue with these sort of more traditional collect the material and then pull it out is that you have to physically take the material out of the collection and in the process of doing it's a very frustrating and tedious process because you grab a good amount of material and you think okay good I'm going to clear all of this and then as you pull the scope out you sort of lose all of that and you can't really get it and your your uh, I'd say our return on investment of time is is low so devices like these that you know are are kind of chewing up the material and suctioning and allowing you to stay in one place and just really hover there, definitely make it much more effective and and save some time. And there are some other devices too that are sort of large scooping devices. I don't have too much familiarity with all of them. There's some solutions that people do use hydrogen peroxide, for example. I haven't had great experience with using it during a procedure. It tends to fog up the scope, but I have in the past when I've used it, sort of delivered it at the end of the session. You have to be careful. You have to make sure you sort of remove everything you put in with the hope that it sort of will loosen things for the next time. All right. So more on complications. So what walk us through your complication management post-procedure. So the first is to get imaging to understand what's going on. Um, and, you know, use that as sort of your cue in terms of how you're going to manage that. In most situations, you're bringing the patient back into scope to visually see what's happening. For occlusion resulting in infection, you want to, you know, start the, the necrosectomy process, pull out the double pigtail sense if you place them, go in, dilate, see what's going on inside. If it's just a question of it got occluded early, what you don't want to do is remove that stent too early because you know there is still risk of perforation if it if it hasn't sort of granulized and fistulized. So you know if an occlusion happens early, keep the keep the axios in, just clean out lumen, and maybe go in and start to debride mechanically for bleeding, which can be very devastating. There's been a few ways to manage that that I've seen. The first is to actually start with imaging, including a CTA, to see if there is a pseudoaneurysm in the collection that you weren't aware of at the time of decompression. That speaks actually to the the procedure itself. It's not. It's it's a common. It should be a common maneuver to do a fluid aspiration before you puncture in order to confirm that it's not blood. If you see fresh blood or something that signifies an acute bleed, then you have to be suspicious of there potentially being a pseudoaneurysm that's being tamponaded by the collection. Once you decompress it, you lose control. Oh boy. (laughs) Right. So, (laughs) and also you can, you know, you do an initial aspiration to send fluid for culture and just to confirm that, you know, you're in the right place. If you do experience bleeding, I think getting your IR um, colleagues involved uh, doing a CTA and embolizing before going back in. Without a visual, you really are, are helpless in terms of what you can do. So going in and seeing 
a lot of clot and or or active bleeding there's going to be limited amount that you can do until it's temporized if there's not you know active bleeding but there has been a sign of bleeding is to go in and inspect i have heard case reports of clips being placed within the collection I personally have used hemospray in the collection. And then the other thing I've done is to, when there was concern for active bleeding, was to actually remove the axios and close, close the fistula in, in order to recreate the tamponade effect. You have to think a little bit about what's the source of the bleeding and then different kind of creative ways of <laughs> stopping it. And it really is, does involve a lot of collaboration with not only the interventional radiologists, but the surgeons as well, because some of these patients might require emergent surgery. So the final thing I wanted to ask you about is uh, working with your multidisciplinary team. Obviously, you're managing these patients, but I'm wondering how much the other specialties are also managing these patients? I think there's been a shift. I think these patients initially were always on the surgical services. And as this procedure in general, this is gastrostomy, um, but then even Axios got introduced, there was a shift where they came more from medical services. We always work in a multidisciplinary fashion with our surgeons and our radiologists in discussing all of these patients, even though we know, you know, we're going to be the first ones to intervene. And I think that's also the shift from the surgeon's perspective, too. They would rather that we try this first, even for complex collections, ones that are extending down the paracolic gutters, um, things that traditionally one may have sent to IR first or to surgery first. You know, the, the sort of thought is, why don't you initiate the access and see how far that gets you? And then if, you know, if we're not resolving We'll think of some collaborative ways to work on this. And we have had that those situations, you know, patients who have large collections, we've worked quite a bit on them. We're not really making headway. One thing to do is, you know, an ERCP and do a transpapillary pancreatic stent. The other is to have IR place catheters into the pericolic gutters, for example. We've worked with our surgeons where, um, or our IR colleagues where they place access and then we use that access and we scope transcutaneously into the collections or we have our surgeons do you know a VARDS procedure or, or we do both. I think the important thing is to maintain the patient outcome and we're all sort of recognizing that some of this technology and innovation technology allows us to work together to resolve these things more quickly and you know it doesn't have to be all taken care of by one of the disciplines so i think that's actually been a really nice example of how we've worked collectively together to you know improve this process for our patients i'm wondering how that's evolved because it probably when you first started doing these i'm sure you weren't working with the team as much how, how has this evolved over the years yeah so it, it comes with introduction I think this applies to any innovation. It comes with sort of working in this multidisciplinary group, being a part of the discussion, obviously picking the right patients to introduce the concept in, and having allyship with one or two surgical colleagues that are going to trust you in introducing this, and then being successful. (laughs) (laughs) That helps. Yep, yep. And then demonstrating that and then slowly, you know, easing it in. Doing it without letting anybody know is never the right way to go. You will run into complications. You'll need people to bail you out. And no one wants to feel like you've taken something from them. We all need each other's help in this process and identifying the right patients and the right sort of steps to go by. So I think that's how we did, how we introduced it in our 
in our institution is through that meeting training well to make sure that we were successful. Yeah. <laughs> we had that early access with the device that existed before this, speaking from that experience, speaking from our own expertise in dealing with collections and the procedure in general, and then demonstrating that success definitely made it evolve. So now it's not only us, it's them coming to us and saying, what about trying an Axios? <laughs> you know? Nice. And, it, and because again, recognizing that in that patient, maybe being able to offer a less invasive method than surgery is going to benefit the patient. As long as we all keep our eye on that prize, it'll be easier to introduce these types of innovation. Well, Dr. Sethi, this has been so awesome today. I really appreciate your time and your knowledge has been amazing. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Indocast. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit our virtual education platform, EduCare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E dot bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every case or patient. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote or encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. Thank you.